for the week of July 18th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 549, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And at the headquarters of the new home of Showbiz Sandbox Plus, I'm Michael Giltz. Congratulations, we're here at the launch of Showbiz Sandbox Plus. Very exciting. I'm not you- editing anything else. I don't know what you think you're giving away, but I'm not, I'm not editing it. Somebody gonna, else is going to have to do it. Well, wh- why not? Showbiz Sandbox Plus, we're going to have extended arguments, behind-the-scenes arguments, uh, uh, longer reviews of stuff that you can get 100,000 reviews of elsewhere. It's going to be great. Okay, we're not doing it, but everybody else is doing it. CNN Plus, that's happening. CNN just announced they're launching CNN Plus in the first quarter of 2022. Lots of your friends from CNN will appear on CNN+. Plus. There will be 8 to 12 hours of live programming. There will be stuff in the library and on demand. I'm not sure what the difference is between that. The stuff on the library on an app is on demand. But anyway, it will also be interactive. There will be a community of people. The cost? We don't know. Ads? Eh, not at the start. And ESPN+, Plus, they're already launched, and they're bumping up their fee a little bit. Their fee will be going up a dollar from $6 in North America to $7. The bundle of Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN doesn't change. However, they have been adding a lot of content. 75 NHL games, Wimbledon next year, tons of archive stuff. So ESPN Plus has been beefed up. CNN Plus is beefing up. They're going to hire hundreds of people to create content and deal with CNN Plus. So I guess that's good news. Yeah, maybe they could use, I don't know, a show about the entertainment industry. Exactly. With with fun commentary, new content, a new perspective. That's a great idea, Sperling. CNN Plus, call us. We're yes. available. Yes. Should we tell people how they could call us? Sure. Well, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. And we will be reading a listener email later uh, later in in this episode. But you can also call us 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. That's right. Jeff Zucker is listening, Sperling. So let's make this the best podcast ever. What are we going to talk about? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got some bad news, actually. Another year and another round of Emmy nominations without any recognition for Showbiz Sandbox. That's right. Damn it. Maybe we need to be on CNN Plus. I'm just saying. Then we could get an Emmy nomination. That's right. Yeah. Well, hey, we aren't a TV show, but if they can honor Hamilton, can't they honor us? I mean, Hamilton was for... Plus, Bo Burnham got all Orson Welles on his TV comedy special. He did it all. And the Emmys loved it. We'll discuss. Of course, I was at the Cannes Film Festival. And spoiler (laughs) alert, okay, get this. Spike Lee, he gave some spoilers. This was classic. Okay, we'll explain what we're talking about. Yeah, we'll we'll look at the top awards, uh, his memorable gaffe, Spike Lee's memorable gaffe. And, uh, you know, anything they did this year, if anything they did this year, will carry over into the future, like the ticketing and stuff like that. Oh, and while, while Cannes had a massive influence on the Oscars in 2019, Thanks to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite, uh, it's back to the old arty ways, okay? Because that's what happened at this year's festival. Since the top prize went to a movie about a woman impregnated by a car. Yes, a car. We assume Oscar will look to Toronto for more populist fare. 
On Inside Baseball, we'll take a deep dive into Black Widow, piracy, and whether any... This sentence does not make any sense. (laughs) Let me try. On Inside Baseball, we'll take a deep dive into Black Widow, piracy, and whether any conclusions can be drawn from its day and date availability on premium video on demand. Okay, well, that's what we're going to do. This sentence made no sense to me. But in any case, uh, you know, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, you know what we're going to do. We're going to discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz, who obviously can read better than me. He's going to fill us in on this last week's box office, not the weekends, but the entire week. It's great to have you back in America, Sperling. Can you tell I'm jet lagged, by the way? I can, but I would like you now to spit into this cup. Anyway, just want to make you feel comfortable. Now, if for those for those who, who are wondering what the heck he's talking about, can COVID testing, Google it. All right, we're looking at box office around the world, and the most pirated film around the world is Black Widow for the second week in a row. Wait, I'll save that for Inside Baseball. We're going to look at the actual box office, and it's for the week ending July 18th. We looked at ComScore and pulled information from everywhere else we could. And the number one film around the world is Black Widow. It made $105 million this week. It's at $265 million worldwide. It also made money on premium video on demand. We know it made at least $60 million, though Disney said nothing about how much money it made this week. Uh-huh. I bet it wasn't $70 million. <laughs> and most importantly... And we'll talk about, again, this is all on Inside Baseball. It dropped almost 70% from its opening week. That's the worst of any Marvel movie ever. Not good. At number yeah, two I mean, is, even Avengers Endgame, which was like $200 trillion for, in its first weekend, its <laughs> didn't, did not drop that much in its second weekend. Ant-Man and the Wasp had a big drop on its second weekend. Some other movies have had big drops because, you know, uh, like, Fast and Furious 9 had a big drop, not a Marvel movie, because it second weekend was July 4th, which is not a good movie-going weekend. You know, there were things to look at, but this clearly, it was well-reviewed, well-received by audiences, and it fell very hard in its second weekend. Certainly, it's worth talking about. Back to the box office. At number one is Black Widow with $105 million. At number two is Chinese Doctors. It's a Chinese drama about the pandemic. It grossed $83 million this week. It's at about $140 million worldwide. At number three, the movie that's number one in North America, it's Space Jam, A New Legacy. LeBron, why? Did you not see the original Space Jam? Why? Anyway, it made $55 million on its opening week. You know, when I went grocery shopping this weekend, I couldn't find any Space Jam. I could find, like, Smucker's Grape and Cherry. See, you but walked no all over. That was, a, that was a good joke, and you walked all over it with the timing. Oh, well, I, I like that one. That was pretty good. At number four is F9. It made $49 million this week. It's just about to hit $600 million worldwide, and it had a 30-day window. Take that, Black Widow. At number five, Escape Room, Tournament of Champions. That made $13 million. Basically, it made its budget on its opening week. That's always good. Then there's the Boss Baby Family Business, which is available online on, on Hulu, or I forget where it's at, but it'd be Peacock. 13 mi- Peacock, Pe- thank you very yeah. much. $13 million this week, $48 million worldwide. The Forever Purge made $13 million. It's at $48 million worldwide. Then there's another Chinese film. It's called The Day We Lit Up the Sky. From the trailer, which has no subtitles, it seems to be kids in high school who love love to dance. They are dancing in lines, in rhythm, all the time, in classrooms, outside, at the beach. 
in the rain. They don't care. They are going to dance. It's not a fame academy, but I'm not sure whether they dance in, you know, like the real world or whether it's just something they burst into like a musical. I don't know. But if you know, tell us. We just gave you the info. Had a pretty good opening week, $12 million. Not huge, but we'll have to see how it holds on. The Crudes, a new age. Now that people are back going to movies, The Crudes has a chance to make some more money. It made another $9 million. It's about to hit $200 million worldwide, which means it's tripled its budget, basically. So that's great news, given all the Michigas that we've had to deal with. Michigas. Uh, is that a, is that the official term for it? Uh, I think it, Earth it is, is going through it, some... Some Michigas right here on Earth. Yeah. It is It is if you're a Jew. Uh, the Medium. This is a Thai horror film. There's exorcism involved. It opened up to $8 million. It's a co-production between a Thailand production company and a Korean production company. I don't think I've seen much of that happening before. I thought that was interesting, but it's a Thai-based film. It's set in Thailand. It's done in the Thai language, so it's not like a movie where there's a Thai-Korean element that I'm aware of, but that sort of you know, back and forth and synergy, great to see all over the world. Then there's Cruella, that made seven million. A Quiet Place Part Two made seven million. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, made six million dollars. That, of course, is also on HBO Max. 1921, a Chinese propaganda film, made another six million dollars. Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, that's struggling to get to triple its budget. I don't think it's going to get there. It is a theatrical exclusive, but it opened amidst all sorts of restrictions. It made $6 million this week. It's at about $150 million worldwide, but it cost $75 million to make. Now, Luca is the Disney film that is available in countries where there's no Disney+. Plus. It's a well, isn't it, isn't it a Pixar film? film? It, it's a Pixar it's a, film, right? It, yes, it's a Disney Pixar film, a, a division okay, of yeah. Disney. Um, it is doing really well on streaming. We'll have TV streaming numbers for you in a little bit. Worldwide, it's barely playing anywhere. It made $3 million this week. I have no idea how many territories are left for it. It's at $24 million total. I wish to God there was like a little pie chart that showed movies and how many territories this has opened up in. You know, like if it's opened up in a third of the world, a third of the pie chart should be graphed out. If it's opened up already in 98% of the world, 98% of the little pie chart should be shaded out. There should be a quick, easy way to look at movies and say, okay, it's only played in like two territories or, oh, it's opened up in 70% of the world. Somebody do that. And then back at the chart, Man in Love made $2 million. That's a Taiwanese comic drama we talked about. Here's some big news. Sperling's old friend Nick Cage. It's not a hit film, but it got good reviews, especially his performance. It's Pig, starring Nicolas Cage. It's on 550 screens, and it made a million bucks in North America. Even bigger news, Anthony Bourdain's documentary, Roadrunner, before got into a kerfuffle about standards for documentary films and what's fair and what's not fair, it opened on up on almost 1,000 screens, 927 screens. That's a very big opening for a documentary film. It grossed $2 million, which is a lot of money for a documentary film. Anthony Bourdain, very popular, very famous. We'll get to the kerfuffle when we get to Big Deal or Big Whoop. You can see why CNN went and uh, started this new show called Stanley Tucci Finds Italy or whatever it's called, uh, because look, look at how popular the Anthony Bourdain show was on CNN. And now they have this Stanley Tucci running around Italy, eating everything in sight. Uh, and, and, doing, and, and that's doing well, too. Quite well. It's very yeah, popular. Yeah, yeah. As well it should. And, and you know, Anthony Bourdain, three years after he unfortunately committed suicide, is still popular. He died by suicide. Yes, that's very sad. Um, and that's part of the film. 
Learning about his life, learning things about him that you didn't know. Haven't seen it. Kind of interested. I'm also interested in what's going on at the Golden Globes. It's a mess. You, you would be the only one. <laughs> I'm kidding, of oh, course. Well, but well, fair. Oh, no, I get you. That's a good point to be made. You could be very indifferent to it, but it's interesting. Now they're TV overlords, the people who pay them all the money that they share out among themselves, they're calling for a complete restructuring, making one area profitable, another area nonprofit, completely redoing everything. No more goodies, says the Golden Globes to their people. No more goodies, no more trips. So that Emily in Paris junket, that would never happen again. That's a big change. Is it going to be enough? I don't know. <laughs> people yeah. like the show. It's made it made ratings and made money for people. There's a lot of desire to keep that going just for the network NBC. But boy, it's a damaged brand. The Emmy nominations, however, they're not a damaged brand. We didn't get nominated, but lots of other people did. What's the big news? Well, before you get off the HFPA, a lot of people uh -huh. are considering the Critics' Choice Awards as the replacement for the HFPA because, of course, is and the Golden Globes because let's face it, you're right. A lot of people made money. And it was a nice way to kick off the awards season. And the Critics' Choice went to the Beverly Hilton, where the Golden Globes are held each year, and said, okay, we'd like to you know, rent your space out for our big awards show. And they said, and Beverly Hilton said, all right, yeah, we could totally, oh, what? What's that, HFPA? You, you don't want us talking to the Critics' Choice? Oh, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, Critics' Choice. I'm, I'm sure they can find another space. Yeah, I'm sure as well. But you asked about right. the Emmy nominations. Guess where they're not held? At the Beverly Hilton. No, they're held uh, They're held elsewhere. Uh, but uh, you wanted to know what was going on with the Emmy Awards. The nominations for this year were given out. And here's the thing. If you are on a streaming show, congratulations, you probably did very well. If you are on a broadcast TV network, our condolences. <laughs> Yes, the networks are just, it's been going on for years. They almost don't matter at all. It's like the Ace Awards. They need their own award show so they can honor themselves. Some people say, well, we should have a special category for shows like Law and Order that have been playing for 20 years that don't get any Emmy love or NCIS. It's like you want an award category for shows that are chugging along and making a lot of money, but nobody really pays attention to them, you know, in terms of awards. What would that be? It's like your reward is running for 10 or 15 seasons. That's its own reward. You know, you your, don't your, also your, get your an award. Your reward is literally in the mail. It's called a check. <laughs> yeah. Streamers dominated completely. Absolutely. Apple is a player now. Thanks to Ted Lasso. That may be the favorite for best comedy. The morning show did not make them a player. I really think Ted Lasso is what is making them a player. Great diversity in acting categories. That's good to see. HBO Max had a big triumph, Lovecraft Country. That follows Watchmen as a one-and-done landmark show. Would it, should it have gone on for a few more years? Maybe. But is it a show that works in a single miniseries, one-season format? Absolutely. The same is true for both shows. Not a good look that they're both dominated by people of color in the casting and that they say, yeah, we don't want a second season despite the overwhelming critical acclaim. But oh well. But the Emmys are going to happen, right? Wherever they happen, there's going to be an audience there, isn't there? I believe so. It's going to be live with Cedric the Entertainer. You know, you couldn't get a better guy, right? Uh, his right. entertainer like, like, isn't his name. <laughs> I like him actually a lot. But what is the job of the Emmys? We know what we think the job of the Oscars is. It's to say, hey, introduce people to movies and make them go, man, I want to see that movie I hadn't heard of before. The Emmys need to do the same thing, don't they? Yeah, they need to make me feel once again like, man, maybe I should really watch The Crown. Because mm -hmm. I haven't watched The Crown, and every year when it wins like a zillion, I think it will, the last last year it won, and I was like, you know, maybe I should watch that. Maybe I should watch this Downton Abbey thing, because, you know, it's, it's 
getting all these awards. Well, The Crown at least has a huge profile, but the vast majority of shows being nominated are critically acclaimed or they're popular to a degree, but most people have not watched them. People watching NBC, CBS, and ABC back in the day, a flop show got 8 million, 10 million people watching it a week. Big hits were hitting 20, 30 million people a week. That is not the case anymore. Even for shows you think of as really big hits, it's really hard to have a Game of Thrones level of popularity. So all these shows really need a boost. But let, tell me, what's more shocking? Best comedy nomination for Emily in Paris or best comedy nomination for Cobra Kai? Cobra Kai, without a doubt, isn't, isn't, best, isn't Cobra Kai like an action kind of drama? It's barely a comedy. So our in-house film critic, Sperling, says it's not a comedy at all. It's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. So that's a little bizarre. What about what's more shocking? A best drama nomination for The Mandalorian or for The Boys? I guess you kind of have to put them in some category. So I would say, well, both are, I guess they're dramas, but they're both kind of like superhero type. It's sci-fi type. Yeah, it's, that's really the thing. Emmys has really broken the barrier on genre. Game of Thrones really helped there. And now when you look at the best comedies and the best dramas, there's no need for prestige dramas. They're willing to throw in the mix sci-fi and fantasy and horror and all sorts of stuff that's been happening slowly over the years. There was a time when a show like Buffy the Vampire Slayer year after year after year would get ignored, even though it was hugely acclaimed. So I don't think that's happening anymore. It's a good list. If the Oscars want popular movies in the mix, they can look at the Emmys and go, damn, you know, you look at those lists. There are shows people are, have seen or are familiar with and think I should watch it. And, you know, the show is a great chance to say, hey, look, here's why you should watch it. Look at these clips. But at least there are shows that have buzz and energy and are from a big different mix. It's not just the show that 50-year-old people are watching. It's shows that the 20-year-olds are watching. It's hip shows. It's cool shows. The networks are still in the mix. They have Blackish, and they have This Is Us, and they have um, uh, other stuff. (laughs) Reality, I guess. But Best Limited Series, uh, this is a very tough category. They're probably thrilled Lovecraft Country was not up for Best Limited Series because... Where would they put it? <laughs> you have I May Destroy You, Mayor of Easttown, The Queen's Gambit, The Underground Railroad, and WandaVision. And that means there's nothing from Small Axe, and there was nothing for The Good Lord Bird and Ethan Hawke and a bunch of other limited series that are have their adherence and quite you know reasonably so. Out of those five miniseries, who do you think is going to win? I think the Queen's Gambit, just because it, it was more of a cultural touchstone, everybody's talking about it. Mayor of Easttown, though, people love. I mean, that you want to talk about a tough category? That's it. That's the category. What do you that, pick? They're all uh, great. Yeah, that's you can't. Yeah, you can't. Well, I haven't seen them all, but you you can't go wrong. There's a good argument for all of them. None of them certainly are embarrassing picks. They're all very reasonable. And a great pick this year was Best Actress. MJ Rodriguez of Pose became the first transgender woman to be nominated for Best Actress. In fact, she's the first transgender performer ever in a lead acting category. That's cool. But the one thing that ticked people off was Hamilton. They're like, enough. Dear God, it's been out for five years. They filmed a performance from five years ago and blah, blah, blah. Uh, This is a great quote. It's from Daniel Feinberg of Hollywood Reporter. He said, it's funny slash frustrating that David Diggs, Anthony Ramos, and Renee Elise Goldsberry got Hamilton nominations instead of the nominations they deserved for The Good Lord Bird, In Treatment, and Girls 5 Eva, respectively. That is a great comment. 
I think Hamilton deserves to be on there in terms of it's eligible. Lots of other stuff has been nominated just like it. It's perfectly valid. They did, you know, Sondheim's The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. You're, you know, I mean, this, it happens. <laughs> it's okay that, you know, the Sweeney Todd, it happens, but it's a really boring choice. Is it really that beautifully so well yeah. done as a TV special? I don't think it's interesting. It would be no diss to say, yeah, you know, it's a knee jerk thing. It's a great pro- project. I saw the show twice or three times. You know, I I understand the love, but it is pretty boring. That's for sure. Well, what about Comedy Frontrunner? Have you watched well, Ted Lasso? I I have, but but my question is, how does a bastard orphan? Son of a, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's it's a Hamilton joke. I have watched Ted Lasso. It is a great show. I'm really looking forward to the second season. Uh, and it, it, you know, I is it out now or is it out like this week? I think it's out like it, this it's, week. It's out. I think it's. Oh, out. okay. Well, I know that uh, there are about a thousand and one sports columns talking about how coaches are becoming more like Ted Lasso. You know, they're all well, touchy feely. Posi- it's a it's a positive show, which is something I really like. I like shows where. There's a certain positivity about it. Not a blind, you know, rose-colored glasses, but a realistic positivity I like. It's the got to be the comedy front-runner, I think. Even though it's a first-season show, it's also the only show with multiple writing and directing nominations. It's the most nominated freshman comedy in history. Uh, that's all very impressive. In drama, who's the front-runner? I mean, The Mandalorian? It's the only one with two writing nods. But The Crown is the only one with two directing nods. I'd love to say it's Lovecraft Country. That's the prestige. I, I think it's more the crown than anything yes, else. Yes, but it's going to be the crown. Uh, I, I I imagine the Diana, Princess of Wales, puts you over the top. Allison Janney could make history. She could win her eighth Emmy this time for Mom, the sitcom, and that would tie her with Julia Louis Dreyfus and Cloris Leachman, the great Cloris Leachman, who have the most acting Emmys. Ed Asner has the most for men with seven. Uh, so, so. H- how come he's so grouchy? Ed Asner is so grouchy. <laughs> I mean, every time, every you know, I worked with him on on a, on on something once. It was like a pilot, and he was so grouchy. I got him a, a sandwich <laughs> once, and he bit into it. Ah, like, What's the man is? Yeah, it was, I was like, man, you are really grouchy. I didn't know. I would have said I, what I should have said is, Ed, listen, you got seven Emmys. Why are you so grouchy? <laughs> well, uh, Bo Burnham is not grouchy. When people were filling out nominations, he said, hey, let's keep this simple. Just write in Bo Burnham for everything. And they kind of did. He shot his special, Bo Burnham, inside all by himself. Literally. He did the lighting. He did the editing. He did the camera work. He wrote all the songs. He performed them. He did the music. He did everything. And they really recognized this special and liked it a lot. I thought it was great, too. Uh, our in-house film critic, Aaron Rich, is like, it's fine, it's good, but it's not sliced bread. I'm like, it is sliced bread. It's awesome. And he Wait a second. Really what, what, what's, a the, what's, with this, what's with the sliced bread? What, what, what do you have against sliced bread? What, what does Nothing. sliced I just, bread ever I do get to a you? Quor- I get a quarter every time I say sliced bread. Oh, okay. So, so, I, so, I, it's, so that's your, that's your uh, paramount decree then? <laughs> Ding! Yeah, so very cool <laughs> to see Bo Burnham. I really hope he wins. It's a tough category, but Already, the fact that he got nominations in so many categories that editors and cinematographers and other people, the people who know that work said, yeah, no, you did a really good job. It's a very impressive thing to have done on your own, but it's not being graded on the curve. They're like, no, the editing is good. So that's kind of cool to see. I, however, wish I had seen Khan. I really miss not being there. Not so much this year, but just in general. I'm like, oh, man, I want to go back to Khan. Did you have a great time? Was it really satisfying or was it kind of a hassle? You know what? It was the first thing I have done in over a year. 
and so it was, yeah, there were certain things that were kind of a hassle, but also understandably a hassle, meaning you know why you're spitting into a tube every five minutes, because you know what? There's a pandemic on. And if they're going to be doing these types of events with tens of thousands of people from all over the world gathered in one place, then you know what? Try and do it safely. And I think the Cannes Film Festival did a good job of that. They had 70 well, cases throughout the, they, yeah. they identified 70, only 70 out of, I think, 30,000. So and no bad. particular cluster. So let's hope that that continues and that people won't be carrying stuff home with them. But because, you know, you go to airport through airports on your way home. It's not just what happens there at the fest in general. Not a good idea for people to be getting together. Look at the Olympics. But anyway, it was a nutty con. It was an unusual con. It's completely unprecedented. It hopefully will not be like that next year. The Palm Door went to a film directed by a woman. It's only the second time in history that the Palm Door winner has gone to a film directed by a woman. The first time was Jane Campion, who won for The Piano, a film which was tied with Farewell, My Concubine. And boy, is that a bad tie, Farewell, My Concubine. I know people, it's beloved in, in uh, parts of the world and it's like, no, that's not that good a movie. But The Piano <laughs> is great. It's great. Yeah. And this, this movie is nutty. A woman impregnated by a car and then she's lactating motor oil. It's, and then she dresses as a boy. It's crazy. <laughs> Why don't you give everything away for Pete's sake? The name of the movie is Titan, which stands for titanium. Uh, and it's, uh, I'm not going to give everything away, but you're right. It's, uh, it was quickly known as the, uh, car sex movie. There was a lot of cunnilingus at con, or as Stephen Garrett also said, talking about the, uh, Paul Verhoeven film, Nunnalingus. <laughs> but anyway, yes. that's truly, you're going to go to hell for that one, Stephen. Uh, but yeah, this is a crazy, <laughs> wacky movie. This is a totally offbeat choice. Compared to last year, I think last year was a complete, you know, fluke that Khan was so in tune with the Oscars last year. That never never happens. Rarely do Khan films go on to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture or certainly the not artist. win. The artist. It's, it's rarely, rarely, rarely do Khan film Palm Door winners win Best Picture. It almost never happens. It's not something Khan is known for. Toronto, no, it isn't. Venice, they have a much better track record. Last year was a fluke. Thanks mostly to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. This year, they're back to their wacky, arty ways, and I'm happy for it. But to yeah, me, I mean, if, if, the, if there's mm -hmm. going to be a, a film that comes out of Cannes that wins Oscars, it's usually in the acting categories or definitely the, the international film, you know, best foreign language, what used to be best foreign language feature, uh, you, you know, would usually like three out of the five would come out of can, uh, but two out of the last, uh, so from 2010 to 2020, two out of 10 were Palm d'Or winners. So well, we could know, say we know, that 20%, yeah. but, but I would agree with you historically, if you went all the yeah. way back to 1980, no, that's not, not really not a something. player. And you, yeah. you could go back farther. There's no reason to stop in 1980. I, I just yeah, picked it. Yeah. You got to go back to Marty, you know, <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't happen very much. But to me, the big, the big revolution at con was reserved seats. You could get tickets for screenings and know you were going to get in and not have to show up two hours early for a really big, powerful screening. I know Terry Fremo listens to our podcast. Terry, please, for the love of God, maintain that policy next year. You waste people so much time standing in line, hours, every day. And if they cannot stand in line, what do they do, Sperling? 
they actually go back to wherever they are staying or the press room and they actually write coverage and file coverage of guess what the film festival we were able to work on coverage of this festival far more efficiently and 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 in greater numbers because we weren't spending two hours in the heat in the rain standing there waiting multiple films multiple times throughout the day i mean that's half your job it's like what time do i have to get there how early and it depends on your badge and the lower your badges the more of a hassle it is so therefore you really freed up time for people with yellow badges they could find other stories to do interview people do something with their day you know it's just really a much better way to go i hope they maintain it and i say that as a guy who would probably get a yellow badge if i showed back up and be like why can't i get into that screening but i, and, and like, I will uh, say they, they had like an online ticketing platform and yes the first two three days were is a little bit like Ticketmaster, and you were like i don't know nothing's nothing's loading nothing's working but you know what to their credit they fixed it there were a few hiccups here and there but ultimately it worked and that's what that's what matters. And uh, they didn't oversell any of the uh, any any of the events. So if you had a ticket, you were pretty guaranteed to get in. Now, of course, in future years, they're hoping that more journalists will show up. And of course, then it might be a little harder to get a ticket. But if you really want to see a film, when, you can. And when you see everybody getting tickets in massive demand and signing up for the you know, the waiting line, then you say, Hmm, maybe we can do an extra screening. We can see this film is getting great buzz and we need to add a, you know, and then do another ticketing policy, which will just help people for all of this stuff. It shouldn't have to be such a lottery and a waste of time, but you're glad you went, you met lots of people. It's important. It's not as social as it was years in the past, but it did help you network and see people. And you hope it's even more like that in years to come. Aren't you? Yes, well, I I agree. And you asked about uh, the the films this year. Look, you know, Titan I didn't, was well. Okay, <laughs> before we started recording, you asked about the films. Okay, uh, <laughs> Titan was definitely like the the highlight in terms of like it was a wild ride. It was played in the middle of the festival, and everybody it's not knew a good, it was. Is it, it's not a good film, though, right? It's an okay film. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a mm-hmm. bad movie. It's not a bad movie well, at all. But it's definitely not one you. I would say a hero. Uh, Ashkar Farhadi's film, which is uh, set in Iran, obviously. It's a process movie like all of Ashkar Farhadi's movies. He's won two Oscars, all right, for a separation. And uh, oh, now I'm uh, the I salesman. That, I don't know what that means, a process movie. It's not a bank heist. What do you mean it's a process movie? Uh, it, it, you know, about it's a movie about a guy who is in prison who gets uh, a leave and he's trying to stay out of prison and not have to go back to prison. But to do that, he has to pay off the debt which put him in prison in the first place. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, one white lie turns into somebody else telling a lie, turns into, yeah. you know, how, does, how but, is he going really to stay out of prison? I you did really like liked that. it. He's one of the best directors in the world. So that's great to hear. And compartment number six won a so that won the grand prize, which was a tie with compartment number six, which was uh, Juho Kuo. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's Finnish. Kuo Samanen, but it was set on the Trans Siberian Railway, a railway that, uh, after watching it, I can honestly say I don't necessarily need to ever take because it does <laughs> not look like uh, a lot of fun. But uh, it was a kind of a two hander, and it, it, that worked as well. A slower movie, but it definitely worked. Speaking uh, of a slow I, movie, there's speaking of a slow movie, there's Drive My Car based on the the Murakami short story. It was the longest filming competition. It got very good reviews, but it all takes place inside a car. Is this pure art house fair? Or is it even too arty for that? It does not all take place inside a car. A lot of it almost does. all of it. 
Okay. Uh, well, a lot of it does, but frankly, uh, it takes place uh, on a stage. This is about an actor who and director, a theater actor director, whose process is everybody speaks a different language in as he puts on checkoff plays. So everybody's, you know, you might be speaking Russian as one character and I might be speaking Japanese as the other character. So it's a flow of, and he, he's, he goes to Hiroshima where he's going to put on Uncle Vanya and he's having, uh, trouble in his in his life uh, that that kind of mirrors what goes on in uncle vanya and uh he's not allowed to drive his his beloved sob and he's not allowed to drive it because the theater company says you have to have a driver and so he's being driven around in his in his own car so did you that's love why it or not i don't need to just did you like it? I, I liked it i did like it it was a little long that's it that's, been, that's a no that's a no what about the worst person in the world did you think best actress winner uh yes. renata like yeah. that movie like that movie and she deserved it cool cool well you know there's a lot of good movies but the one movie i really wanted to know about was the one that Khan took a big gamble on they did a surprise screen of a documentary film about the hong kong uprising and the government crackdown it's called revolution of our times it made big news in the trades when they surprise announced we've got this documentary about the oppression going on in hong kong they waited until three mainland chinese films had screened because if they'd done this earlier china might have just yanked those movies out of the festival and said you can't show them and undoubtedly Khan will pay a price in the future at least for the next year or two china is going to block future films from playing at con they haven't said that but you're damn certain that that's what they're going to do. So they paid a big price for doing this. They took a big gamble. They stood up for filmmakers and freedom and democracy. They screened this movie. And ever since it screened and they made a little news story, nobody said a word about it. Maybe they're not that good, but it really had no ripple effect. When I asked you, you're like, what movie? <laughs> yeah, I had no idea. No, I mean, one of the movies people are asking me about, without a doubt, the Wes Anderson movie, The French Dispatch, which waited mm -hmm. a year because it was supposed to open the 2020 festival, they, rather than release it, Searchlight uh, and, and Wes Anderson delayed it for a year. It screened at this year's festival, two middling reviews. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an anthology film, so it didn't really get the love, you know, that uh, a, a narrative would get necessarily. And Sean Baker's Red Rocket, you know, he had a film, The Florida Project, down the Quasset. Loved it. In, Loved it. Tangerine. Loved it. Loved Tangerine. Great Loved movies. the Florida Project. But you do not, you're not a big fan of this movie, Red Rocket. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's not that I didn't like it. It's that I didn't like the character. And so uh, it, it's definitely, it was a good movie. And the guy writes cracking dialogue and memorable characters and interesting settings. And he's good narrative wise. But God, you know, I just, the, 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 the guy was such a narcissist. And he was so like, you just wanted to go scream and shake the guy, which by the way, was part of Sean Baker's point. He actually yes, did yes, the job. Exactly. The guy spends the whole movie getting ready. You can see it from early on. Uh, he sees a young 17-year-old girl as his ticket back into the adult film industry. So it's not exactly Rocky. You're not exactly no. rooting for him. And yet you kind of like him. Some people said a lot of the reviews, unlike you said, yeah, you can't help kind of liking the guy, even though he's, you know, not doing likable things and doing horrible things in some ways. But that's they felt he was a little likable despite by the way, you would you would love the fact that uh, Thierry Frimo, who you mentioned earlier, our friend, 
yeah, he introduced Apichipong Virasethakul as Apichipong Joe Virasethakul, who is the, <laughs> uh, he's got the longest name at the Cannes Film Festival. He's the Thai filmmaker uh, who, who, you know, Uncle Boomi won the Palm d'Or uh, back in, I want to say 2008, nine, some, at some point uh, in the past. And uh, this year he was at, at the festival with a film shot in Columbia starring Tilda Swinton. And I'm more of a emperor has no clothes on, on Joe, unfortunately. I can respect it, but I have not really enjoyed any of his movies too much. Uh, Uncle uh, Uncle Boonmi was probably the, the, the peak, but even that wasn't that high for me. This one sounds like a lot of people said, oh, not this one. He did an English language movie, and a lot of people said, not only is it not good, but it seems like a satire of an art house film. Yeah, what did I, you I think? mean... I think the the film ended and people there was like a pause and then there was some <laughs> polite apl- uh, uh, some polite applause you know yeah it was uh, unlike some of his other films I'm like you I'm kind of like I get it I get what he's trying to go for but uh, I don't know it just it's slow cinema slow like there are literally minutes where two characters are on screen not talking to one another for minutes. <laughs> I bet people wish we would do that sometimes. So the hero of Red Rockets is not very uh, likable. Neither at the moment is Drake Bell, talented actor and musician. I've interviewed him. I liked his work. I thought he was a really appealing guy. Unfortunately, he has been sentenced, pled guilty and sentenced to two years probation and 200 hours of community service for exchanging texts of a sexual nature with a minor. She was 12 to 15 years old when they were having their interactions. Uh, he was the star of Drake and Josh. He's released a number of albums, including one that I named one of the 10 best of the year. Uh, I think he's a really talented guy. This is awful and terrible to see. And uh, it happens. I'm glad that she is safer now. And she made all sorts of claims in the period where they're about to sentence him and the witnesses get to speak up. Stuff that she had not said before, which is even more disturbing. He's like, what? You didn't, none of this, you know. So who knows what's going on there, but not good. Not good at all. And it's hard when it's somebody that you like, you know. I know it's not easy. Other people, maybe Woody Allen, not so hard. He hasn't made a movie I loved in, you know, 30 years. So it's not hard to go, yeah, I don't need to see his new movie. Drake Bell, it's uh, really uh, difficult to see. But, you know, maybe that will bump up the streaming numbers for Drake and Josh. Isn't that an ugly thought? But that's what happens. Things get attention, and then suddenly they bump up on the stream. You've got that library of stuff, and suddenly a show that people haven't been watching for a while becomes popular again, and that deep library that you have really helps. That's certainly the case for Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey popped onto Netflix, and uh, we're looking at the streaming numbers for mid-June. A week earlier from the week we're looking at, because there's always a month delay in streaming numbers, Downton Abbey 2, they said, we're already filming the movie. They announced a release date. They then changed the release date, but that's okay. They said, we're filming, and there's going to be a movie coming out. And guess what? Downton Abbey jumped back into the top 10. This week, it's second week after that big announcement, the numbers doubled, the viewing numbers doubled, and 1.2 billion minutes of Downton Abbey were watched. This show's been around for ages. There's no reason people would suddenly jump at it, but that's what happened. So if you look at the top 10 chart uh, that we combined from the you know, the acquired series, the original series, and the movies, Manifest on NBC is at number one. NBC just canceled it, but it just became available on Netflix. And I know multiple people who said, oh, I'm watching Manifest. I'm watching Manifest. I'm like, why are they all watching? Because it became available on Netflix, and they jumped all over it. 2.5 billion minutes reviewed. Luca had a great week. 1.5 billion minutes. That's equal to about 16 million people buying a ticket. 
That's pretty good. Wow. Downton Abbey's at number three. Loki continues to do great as episodes are being released. Now we've reached the finale, but you know, this is four weeks ago. So they're on episode three or four. And it's it's 886 million minutes. Fatherhood, Coco Melon, Lucifer, Grey's Anatomy, Sweet Tooth, which is a very original series on Netflix based on the comic book, and Raya and the Last Dragon. That's an original movie that's playing on Disney Plus. That grossed about 576 million minutes of viewing. Grossed? I don't know. Yeah, about I know. Grossed. I know. Grossed. You know, people are watching it. So there's got to be a way to look at these shows and say, all right, track it over week, over week, over week, add up all the minutes and see how many times it's been viewed. I haven't done the numbers yet, but that's something that people can do and should do to say, hey, Ray has fallen out of the top 10. From what we know, this many equivalent viewings of the movie happened. And then you could start comparing that to other movies to get a sense of what's the most popular week over week. And if people like HBO Max want to be in the conversation, you have to work with Nielsen and other people to make nonpartisan third-party people able to track the viewing numbers and do the best job possible to do it. But it pays to create originals. They're all over these charts. Acquired series are really important too, like Downton Abbey and Manifest. Streaming numbers matter. Right now, these numbers only include Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, and Netflix. I hope everybody else joins in. Well, now it's time for us to move into Big Deal or Big Whoop. Now, if you're wondering what Big Deal or Big Whoop is, it's our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. You know, but, we were first, just talking- but first, let me just say, Sperling, I want to congratulate you. Why you did that? not feel the need to create some, some you know, cringeworthy transition from the streaming. You just said, all right, now it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. There was no, speaking of streaming, The you know, no, you just, you just did it. I thought it was brave, it was bold, and I congratulate you. Well, I, I was trying to to uh, follow the lead of my friend Joe from Thailand and just you know keep it not talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's well, our well, first story? Tell me. Well, well, it's about Frank Darabont, who may curse in staff meetings and be a pain in the neck. But when AMC fired him and tried to squeeze the writer director out of his fair share of the billion dollar franchise that is The Walking Dead, Darabont said, "Yeah, I'll uh, see you in court." He sued, and now, by the way. He's won. After years in court, Darabont and CAA accepted a $200 million payday to relinquish all rights to the franchise. AMC loudly insists this settlement is, has no bearing on lawsuits that we face from other producers like, say, Galen Hurd or, you know, creator Robert Kirkman. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? You know, it is a big deal, and it may actually be too small. You know, they just said, all right, we've had enough hassle. We've got all these lawyer fees. They're adding up. It's been a decade of lawsuits. So they may have settled for less than they deserved. You know, a piece yeah, of the franchise that's still going on, but it's a lot of money. It sure as heck says, yes, they did screw him over. Yes, what they did was wrong. And don't believe for a second it doesn't have some bearing. Because when you behave poorly with one person, people are more than willing to believe you probably treated other people, like the creator of the show, a producer on the show, poorly as well. And boy, Andrew Lincoln, the star of The Walking Dead, I thought they really wimped out creatively when they just helicoptered him. He said, he's leaving the show. He's leaving the show. And then they said, we're going to make movies with Andrew. I was like, wait. If he's just going to make Walking Dead zombie movies, but with new characters, like that's not really him leaving the show or ending his run. It's just like, oh, whatever. But they haven't made them yet, have they? And no, they I, have not. I think he's ready. He's like, uh, can we do those movies? I'm not doing a lot right now. So 
I don't know what's the delay on them. They were talking feature film or TV specials, but whatever. But, you know, The Walking Dead is getting slower and slower, closer to its end game. It's nowhere near the hit it was before. But wow, it's really made uh, headlines with this settlement. $200 million. I don't know how much he'll end up with, but it's still a nice payday and vindication morally for sure. Well, uh, I just got a phone call from Disney. They said you cannot use Endgame with uh, The Walking Dead. That's this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the Cannes Film Festival just took place, as we were discussing, and a lot of international journalists didn't make the trip. Also, by the way, at Cannes, the market wasn't very robust. The beehive of business that usually takes place, which is a different world from the movies playing in competition, by the way. Uh, and they, they vie for all, you know, all these movies are vying for big buck steals. Sometimes you never hear about these movies after they sell at the market. And now MIPCOM TV looks to be underwhelming as well. ITV Studios is joining the BBC and Banerjee, which is the company behind Peaky Blinders. They're going to skip the event this October. Others will have a reduced presence with COVID and the potential of quarantines and new lockdowns make it not worth the uncertainty. If MIP TV takes place at all, it will be the first big worldwide gathering of TV folks since the pandemic began. So this is like the Cannes film market, but for TV. And they're saying, nah, maybe not so much. Big deal or big whoop. Well, it's a big deal because it matters that people can get together. It can't all be done on Zoom, not efficiently, not smartly, not to create those. You know, you don't need to meet every week in person, but it does help to meet once every two or three years. And that's what yeah. we're talking about for TV. It's going to be two years. And Khan kind of got lucky. Late summer, you had a short window where before Delta variant took off or the Lambda variant, uh, we could have a lot more shutdowns in the fall because a lot of people in the world can't get vaccinated. And even in countries like the U.S., you have a big chunk of people who won't and refuse to get vaccinated. And that's just going to extend this nightmare of bottlenecks in production, cities and states shutting down. Maybe entire countries won't have to, but big areas of the U.S. may have to again, assuming they're willing to not just watch people die. And the rest of the world, not even close. I mean, they're not even close to you know the vaccination levels we're lucky enough to have. So there's going to be a lot of problems down the road. And you know, TV gatherings like this are going to pay the price. In fact, in London, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Cinderella was supposed to open up. Finally, it's been in previous, about to open the soundtrack, the cast album, I should say, number one on some streaming charts. Well, they're closing it. Andrew Lloyd Webber says, we're done. We got to close it down. Why? One of the people in the show got COVID. They've tested everybody else. Nobody else has it. But because of the way the government restrictions work, uh, it's just too much of a nightmare to shut it all back down and try to start it back up again. And he hasn't even said it will reopen sometime in the future. He's just shut the whole thing down and not promised it'll open up again and blasted the Boris Johnson government over their handling of COVID-19. The government tried to co-opt him, tried to say, well, we'll give you special, we'll give you special rights so you can do Cinderella. He's like, no, they should be the same for everybody opening in the West End. And he refused that to his credit. And now he does hold them accountable for a big fat mess. Not good. We are not done with this sucker yet, unfortunately. Well, you know, uh, right now, uh, today, as a matter of fact, that when we're recording, the UK is opening up wider. And yeah. guess what's also happening uh, in the UK? The Delta variant is spreading at a faster rate than ever. So people are really confused. They're saying, so we have more cases. So you thought it was okay for us to, what yeah. is going on? Because they're uh, just trying to ignore, they're like, people are sick of it. We just want to open up rather than if we just maintain the mask the whole time in the U.S., we'd be a lot further along. People say, I'm sick of the mask. I want to get vaccinated. And you would slow the spread. And But 
letting it undo and then trying to shut it down again, then open up. That's that's kind of the worst case scenario in terms of compliance and people recognizing, no, this is a really dangerous time. And we've now got in the U.S., like they say, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You know, the unvaccinated are really going to pay a heavy price. That is true. Now, I, I do wonder about this next story, because Anthony Bourdain, as we mentioned earlier, he speaks from beyond the grave in his latest documentary. OK, not not quite. But in the new documentary film Roadrunner, which is the name of the documentary, Bourdain narrates the entire movie a la Sunset Boulevard, kind of a nice creative conceit. The guy gave a lot of interviews he, and Bourdain did a lot of talking and was often being filmed as he was talking. So it wasn't hard to patch together the quotes from Bourdain that structure the movie and allow him to comment on his life and work. However, it wasn't always easy to do it. <laughs> At one point, the movie wanted to use a quote Bourdain had written in an email to a friend. It was just a few lines and worked well, but he'd never actually said them while being recorded. So the director used an AI program to feed in Bourdain's voice and then have it read off those lines in a style Bourdain would have used. Some reacted furiously online saying that's not how documentaries should do things. So does Roadrunner cross a line and is it a big deal or a big whoop? Well, what do you think? I'm conflicted. I, I think it was 45 seconds. He did write the words. They're really just putting them, uh, putting a voice to them. If he didn't write the words, yeah, that would be a huge issue. But they come from an email that he wrote to a friend. It's only 45 seconds. I think that it needs to be noted at the end of the film. Hey, you know, parts of this, you know, were, were, you know, less done than with, one minute of the film were done with this method. Yes. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know that you need to, you know, Say, oh, it's not a documentary, or 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 the kerfuffle is is uh, and you know his ex-wife, uh, Bourdain's ex-wife said, if I had known, I never would have given permission for it. For and I thought, well, you're the ex-wife. Well, no, How no, would no, you have no, any? No, she 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 has retracted that. Yeah, no. I, the, okay. no, no, no. The director implied that she had approved it, and she said, no, I did not, and I did not say that Anthony Bourdain would be fine with it. But she later said, in speaking to the New Yorker, you know, no. They, they they spoke to me about it about the possibility of using AI. I simply didn't realize they were going to actually ended up doing it. And in fact, I just distanced myself from the movie right from the get go. It was too difficult to deal with. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to talk about it. I don't really have a problem with it. She said now, and I don't think that he dealt with me poorly or in any way, shape, or form. He felt like he spoke to me about it. He did. And I think he acted in good faith and I'm not as troubled by it as I was at the start, et cetera, et cetera. So they are at peace with each other. He didn't try and do an end run around her and that sort of stuff. But in general, you feel like, okay, just identify it. It's not the best thing in the world, but you understand why they did it. And it was brief. Yeah. And right. But of course that means in the future, they might re you know, have a document narrated by Britney Spears where she said not a word of it. And they might just, you know, script everything and have her say it, even though she never said a single word of the thing. So it opens up a can of worms. Like you, I kind of agree with your attitude. They should have had a disclaimer at the end of the film. I understand why they didn't do it at the moment when the quote appeared, but they should say, hey, there was a 45 second area where we recreated his voice to read words that he himself had written. I get that. And other people say, look, from Nanook of the North on down, 
uh, documentary films have been staged. There's the influence of the camera, the people there. They're structured. There's editing. None of it is real, putting that in quotes. It's always got a structure or a choice of what you edit, what you leave out, what where you are, where you point the camera. That's all been happening. And, of course, the great Errol Morris did reenactments for The Thin Blue Line, which freaked people out. That's why it didn't get an Oscar nomination. And yet right. it's a great, great film. Michael Moore injecting himself into Roger and me. All true. However, some other people are like, oh, what's the big deal? For God's sakes, documentaries aren't real. It's like, no, they are purporting to present a reality. So let's not just willy-nilly say, oh, it doesn't matter. It, there's a difference. You want to present stuff in a way that adheres as closely as your opinion on what went on or the truth of it and restaging things and all that stuff. There better be a damn good reason why you do it. So I can see the reason why they did this. I think they make a good case. They should definitely put that into the end credits somehow. I think that's important to do. And it does yeah. not mean you can just do that all you want forever and ever and suddenly have a documentary where you manipulate Fred Astaire and he talks and chats and, you know, does whatever. So, you know, there's tools that can be used well and poorly. This is a new one. Okay. It's, it's just a, a report from a committee. This next story. But mm -hmm. as Rolling Stone points out, this is the first time a major government has zeroed in on the music streaming business and how artists and writers are getting the shaft. It was just a few weeks ago in the UK that, that they were telling uh, movie and TV streamers like Netflix they should be providing info to producers. You know, stuff like how many households are watching a show. <laughs> So producers can like maybe negotiate with all the facts in front of them. And so we can do more stuff on our podcast. Yeah, that's really what we're talking about. Well, listen, now a UK Parliament committee is looking at music streaming. And you know what it sees? What? A mess. It oh. sees a mess. Oh. They say profits and margins are rising, but songwriters and musicians are not benefiting the way record labels and streamers are. Go figure. They <laughs> call for artists to be more fairly compensated. They want to end rules that they say give an unfair advantage to outlets like YouTube. And they want to institute a 20-year rule. Copyright reverts to artists after 20 years. By the way, good luck with that. So, uh, you know, by the way, th what that would mean, albums released in 2000 would already be back in the hands of the acts that produced them. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, why do you say good luck with that? We have a similar provision in the U.S. where the rights revert to artists. It would be a shorter time span, but they say in music, 20 years is well long past any debts being paid and album success or failure for 99% of all albums. So why would that seem an unrealistic thing to do? I just think, uh, you you know, you just pass a law. You, don't, you don't have to get permission from record labels. You just pass a law. You don't have to ask them. You just tell them this is what's happening in the future. People who record an album today, the rights will revert to them. It doesn't mean they'll go away from the record label. It just means the artist has new power when they maybe renegotiate a deal or take it back and release it themselves or say, oh, you want to keep it in your streaming bundle? Okay, You've, you value this 20 years later. I can now negotiate better terms. That's a, Full credit to music business worldwide. I love them. They do a great job. Love to get want some of their people on the show if you're listening come on but uh they highlighted this story and they pointed out the fact that that last little provision about the 20-year rule that may be the biggest thing to come out of this if it goes into effect but there is a problem of an imbalance in money coming out from streaming more and more people are streaming they need to figure out the flow so artists can keep creating now the olympics are happening just like can did and they're happening in tokyo Hi. a play yeah a plague is sweeping the world and a gathering like the Olympics seems eh, like maybe not such a great idea, like maybe even a really bad idea. But the people in Japan, they really don't want the games. They did 
But then, you know, after the pandemic, they don't. And in fact, less than 10% of the country was has been vaccinated as of this recording. And yet, if the Olympics were canceled, Japan would be on the hook for billions of dollars and the Olympic business would not rake in as much from TV. So the games are happening. Enjoy! <laughs> Apparently, the car company Toyota, they got the message. The games are so unpopular in Japan, and they are a Japanese company, that the company has yanked all of their ads from the games and the chairman will not be attending the opening ceremony where they presumably had great seats. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, that's a big deal. That's how much of a disaster this Olympics is in terms of PR and the people. It's been a disaster for years. You host the Olympics, you're stuck with billions of dollars in debt, and you've got a cycling venue that nobody ever uses, an aerodrome that sits there years after. It's a mess. They really need to change it. They need to stop this holding cities and states hostage and just say, we have four venues around the world for the summer and winter games, and we're going to rotate among them. Enough of this tourism for the Olympics. It's a grotesque boondoggle, and it's corrupt, and it's disgusting, and it should not be happening in Tokyo right now. The people literally don't want it, but when there's big money involved, it doesn't matter what the people want. It's going ahead anyway, and people will literally die because of this. They're not going to have any fans in this in the stadium, but it's really a horrible, stupid thing. I feel really bad for any athletes who have an Olympic canceled because of a worldwide plague, but worldwide plague. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I'm very sorry. I, I'm sorry to worldwide laugh at the plague. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know, so, uh, a, a couple things, uh, not only are there not going to be any fans in the stands, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, if you are an athlete, I think you're allowed to show up like four or five days. Like there's some weird And, and you can't have sex. You're like, don't well, have sex because there's a lot of sex that goes on in the Olympic Village. They have them sleeping on cardboard mattresses, which are pretty durable, but they're intended. If you have two people on the mattress and they're having hanky-panky, they think it will collapse. And so they're like trying to discourage the athletes from having sex. They gave them condoms. And they're like, but don't use them. Take them home. Just no sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, and they're saying, look, you can't stay at the Olympic Village. Normally, you arrive early. You can stay at the Olympic Village. You can leave after mm -hmm. the games are over. Now they're like, hey, arrive like a couple days before your event and then leave. You have two days to get out as soon as your event's over. <laughs> uh, and so they're really just, it's, yeah. no fun. it's a no logistical fun. nightmare. And, it's, and but just, that, that, it's a financial boondoggle and has been for decades. You almost never make money in the Olympics. It really doesn't help you. New York was trying to get it. Bloomberg is a moron as a businessman to argue that you want to bring the Olympics to the New York City. Because, yes, we really have to sell people on New York as a place to visit. That's a good idea. Well, you know, the and, reason LA we failed, the and I'm glad. Yeah, they actually did it. They made money, right? Well, the way that they did it is they basically said, look, here are all the venues already built that we will do this in. Right. At, you know, yeah. And, and that's pretty much, it was like a dual, uh, you know, they were awarded they the games. Mer they merchandised everything off in the world. They'd sold off every venue and everything to sponsors, but you can't do that every time. You really need four cities around the world, including, of course, Athens, and say, all right, here's where we're going to have the games in the future and just rotate among them for variety's sake and regional differences and time zone differences. But this BS of picking random cities and countries and forcing them to 
go into massive debt for the joy of hosting the Olympics so that the corrupt committee can take kickbacks on what city gets chosen, et cetera, et cetera. It's just got to end. I mean, you know? I mean, is it ever any surprise when they're like, oh, uh, the Olympic committee uh, got a special prize or, or treat or, or payment from the winning uh, cities committee, you know, selection. It's, it, it's like, it's almost like, well, of course they did. It's never a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's a surprise is inside baseball. Well, yes. Okay. Because inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And it dawned on me as I was just reading that, I was like, should we even be mentioning a, a part of this story? Because will we be a part of the problem telling people to go pirate a movie? No. Okay, well, then let's talk about Black Widow. It dropped, as you said, 67% uh, during its second weekend. It is the biggest drop ever for any Marvel movie. Uh, it got great reviews. It had good audience response. So why, why is this happening? Some people would say, well, you know, the audience that was really interested in seeing it went to the movie theater. There's still audiences that aren't comfortable with going and sitting in a movie theater, mask or no mask because of the pandemic. Yes, that might be true. It doesn't help that uh, it is one of the most pirated films of the week. Well, it's not solely about piracy, though. It's also about the fact that it's available legally on Disney Plus, day and date. You can pay 30 oh, well, bucks and yeah. watch it. Two, if two adults in a big city are thinking of going to the movie, they can say, well, for the same price, we can just sit here and watch it again and again. You know? They do that. I've, yeah. my, I've, my friend didn't go to see Cruella. They paid for it. They didn't go see Black Widow. They paid for it. It's not just about piracy, but that's certainly a, an important thing to keep in mind. But when it drops 67%, you could even if there was no piracy, you might have seen that drop. If people just said, well, I can just watch it at home. The, the people who can yeah. afford that are doing it. And of course, as we said before, Disney Plus mentioned $60 million in premium video on demand revenue. That's a gross because 15% of that is kept by Roku or Apple or whoever gets a cut of that. So it, they don't get all 60 million. They only get $45 million. But then second uh, weekend. It might, be, it might be more than that, but still. But yeah, it was widely reported as 15%. If you know more, I would love oh, to see okay. it. Oh, okay. So yeah. uh, they did it report was, that. Okay. It was widely reported. Yeah, because initially it wasn't. But then follow up reporting said, oh, by the way, they don't get all that. You know, there is a cut just like there is in theaters. It's not the 50% or 45% it might be in theaters, but it is 15%. That's what a lot of them said. If you're listening and you know better, tell us. But $45 million ain't 60. And guess what? Second weekend premium video on demand. Well, what did you do that weekend, Disney? How much, how many people bought it second? Uh, hello? Hello? So that's it. I need my cricket. I need my cricket sound effect. You sure do. <laughs> that's it. When you're, as NATO said, NATO released a blistering press release. To and, the and NATO, studio. we're not talking about the, the military and, and impact. We're talking about the National Association of Theater or Owners. Thank you. That's right. Who, of course, two years ago saw Disney as their best friend. Disney owned 40% of the box office. One billion dollar movie after another, saying constantly how much they supported exhibition. And now they're releasing movies day and date to Disney+. Plus. And guess what? NATO says, look at the disaster. This had the biggest drop of any Marvel movie ever in its second weekend. You're allowing piracy to happen day and date. We look at piracy numbers and we see movies like, oh, Fast and Furious 9. But you know what they're looking at? They're looking at a cam video. This, this pirated copy is pristine because it's available yeah, because on Disney it's, Plus it's day and date. Somebody basically rented it for $30, ripped it as it was streaming out, and then put it online. There's 22,000 seaters 
right now on on uh, BitTorrent sites. Minimum. That's just the top the top entry. Uh, whereas F9, you've got like five thousand seeders. Uh, so it's a huge difference when you have somebody with an HD cam going into. That's bad enough. But when you have like a pristine copy. Come on. What did you think was going to happen? Right. And you know what? I, I don't watch pirated bootleg things. I Neither do I. I. I have no time for it. I'm too old. But when, every once in a while, when someone has shown me something and I look at it just to see what it looks like, oh, my God, who would watch this? You know, when it's the crappy cam video, I'm like, why would anybody pay on a street corner to get a DVD of this? It's ridiculous. You know, how desperate are you to avoid the money of the movie ticket? But when it's a pristine copy like this, there are people who probably don't even realize and they're talking about this. Some people don't even realize that they're watching a pirated version or that it's I would agree with that. There are websites that look professional and people, they don't know where things are available. Everything is available now, you know, and all sorts of a mishmash. And they're like, oh, okay, I can rent it for $5. And they rent it and they pay to watch it. And they don't know that they're on an illegal website. They don't realize Disney has, because you know what? A few weeks from now, it'll be available on Apple Video and Amazon to rent for $6. So they're not all necessarily pirating. but Again, it's available legally in the home for the price of two adult tickets in most major cities. You're really undercutting this movie. So guess what? Black Widow with those ratings, you would imagine 600 million, 700 million. I think that's a really, really conservative, safe thing to say that it would almost certainly have made $600 million worldwide. Then you get to have all the other income. You get people to pay twice. They see it in a movie theater. They love it. Maybe they go again. Then they rent it for premium video on demand or they buy it or they rent it for $6 or they pay for Disney Plus so they can access it whenever they want. All you're doing is saying, ah, why let you pay twice when you can pay once? Not a great, yeah. not a great scam. Not a great idea. Uh, and that's I, what NATO was trying to point out. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got a list of the most pirated movies of the week from, uh, what's it called? Torrent Freak. Correct. And it's interesting. Is it the death of cinema? No, but making it available day and day in the home, you are seriously limiting how much money you can make on a movie when you make it available in this format. Well, you know, a couple things. Uh, I'm going to tease uh, a letter that we received or an email that we received. Uh, we're going to read that in a moment, but it has a lot to do with Windows. I think well, let's it's, do it. In let's fact, do it's it all now. about Windows. Let's, let's do it now. Uh, I'll, let, I'll read it. It's, it's, okay, from, well, it's from Dean R. in New York City. Uh, and I'd like you to comment because he did uh, not want he didn't want to give his last name because I guess he's he works in the industry. But he, and he wrote to dirt at uh -huh. he wrote. Yeah, well, he wrote to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D.I.R.T. at showbizsandbox.com. He didn't give away any trade secrets, so I don't know. why. No. The, maybe he's just a modest person. But anyway, he says, hey, guys, greetings from NYC. <laughs> I wish I was there. Heard your last episode and wanted to explain what the pay one window is. This is a term of art which has been around for a while but has been referred to more frequently over the last 10 years. It is one of many distribution windows for motion picture and even television titles, not all of which need to begin with a theatrical release. Up until the pandemic, there was even a pre-theatrical window where distributors could offer titles, usually for a short period of time, via transactional means, like video on demand, before a release opened in theaters. This went away when movie theaters closed, but may come back. It's often employed by independent films. As an aside, yes, lots of indie films and docs would be available even before they hit theaters. You could go on demand and pay three bucks and watch it because a lot of people didn't live in a big city where that movie would ever play. So that's been right. going and then, on. And then it would like time. disappear during the theatrical right. run and then come exactly. back. Exactly. Yeah. So the theatrical window is self evident, says Dean R. 
You know, we all know what that is. That's when it plays in a theater. There is then a VOD window, a video on demand window, which overlaps the theatrical window and the pay one window. The pay one window is, as the name suggests, the first in which a title is available to license from its content owner. Often, this has been a pay TV rights holder like HBO, Cinemax, and Showtime. It lasts between 12 and 18 months, not all of which have to be exclusive. You may also hear this window come up in regards to output deals, which is what these are, although the output these days is often to self. Historically, every studio or distributor had an output deal with a paid TV service like HBO, which helped them secure financing to make the film in the first place. These deals have migrated to streaming services or a combination of rights holders. For major studios with streaming services, the output deal for the pay one window is obvious. If you're universal, you put it on Peacock. For a smaller company such as Neon, which produced Parasite, that deal will be with a third party. There are windows beyond the pay one window, such as the AVOD, which is the ad-supported video on demand, or the SVOD, which is streaming video on demand. Yeah, 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 like Netflix, like Netflix. And yes, even a pay two window about 24 months out. None of these windows require or dictate a theatrical release, nor a theatrical release window. They do not require a title to be in a theater for a specific length of time, nor do they dictate if the title must be removed from a movie theater. However, and this is why the Universal announcement is really about ancillary markets and not theatrical distribution strategies, almost all pay one windows begin, quote, no later than 120 days after commercial theatrical release, end quote, in a given market. If a title flops and is out of theaters in a week, the distributor will usually still hold the title for 120 days for contractual purposes. This also boosts the video-on-demand window. The same is true if a title plays out in theaters. Hope this helps clarify the details. Dean R. NYC. Yeah, and and uh, I talked to a couple distributors in Cannes because, of course, there is the market there, however uh, small it might have been this year, who were like t- trying. They went into even more detail about broadcast TV wi- windows, which don't exist anymore because nobody plays a movie on broadcast TV. <laughs> so there it used to be like, yeah, what movie theaters, then HBO, then you know. Uh, VHS, then broadcast TV. And of course, the uh, airline window is uh, like somewhere in the VOD window. I mean, there's all these different windows. And yeah, uh, I guess pay one is also known as output. So yeah, all right. There you go. I feel like he supported a little bit you because you're like, it's not about theatrical. And me when he said, though, actually, they do maintain that 120 day window. So that's a big, a big significant change. If they're saying other people are day and date, there are 45 day windows. There are, you know, uh, 30 day windows, 17 day windows. This is a 120 day window. That's pretty significant. And by and large, they're going to maintain it. We, you know, a lot of theaters think that's great in terms of windowing and getting people comfortable paying twice, making every, every part of the uh, blockchain experience of a movie's release being special profitable yeah profitable exactly well you know uh, we, we we highlight people who have died and we'd like to highlight two people who died this week in our obituary section two of the many people who have died who work in the industry one is actor charlie robinson he died at the age of 75 after a long career on stage film and mostly tv he's been in everything from apocalypse now to hill street blues to a recurring role on mom for which allison janney may get her eighth emmy and the recent miniseries love in the time of cholera But clearly, if you look at his credits, people liked this guy. They worked again and again and again on lots of shows, often with multiple episodes. And he is mostly remembered, however, for a 13-year run 
on three different sitcoms, a 13-year consecutive run on three different sitcoms. For two seasons, he was in the cult classic sitcom Buffalo Bill with Dabney Coleman as a toxic boss from hell. You can't stream it, and I sure as heck wish you did. Gina Davis, Dabney Coleman, Charlie Robinson. Why you can't, I don't know. Then Charlie segued right into a spot on Night Court. He joined it in the show's second season and stayed on for eight years until the finale. And that led into a three-year run on Love and War. A 13-year run on three different sitcoms is pretty rare. And with just a few months off, he was back on the air with Inc., starring Ted Danson. He also recorded on Home Improvement and a lot of other shows. Clearly a likable actor. You see his photo and you go, oh yeah, that guy. I know that guy. It's that guy. And I know you know rapper Biz Markey. Well, of course I do. He you know, died at the age of... He, who is he? He's the... Oh, oh! I know this is a part of his rapping. Uh, what, what's, what's? Yeah. Come on, tell me, tell me. It's good. To He's s- the clown prince of hip hop. He yes, died at no, the age but, of fifty-seven. Uh, but, and as his name, as his nickname suggests, Biz Markie was a positive presence in a genre that could value seriousness uh, to a fault. But he was also a groundbreaking musician. He wasn't just a funny, you know, entertaining guy. He was also a groundbreaking musician who creatively sampled music during the trailblazing days when that was still possible on a dime. His two big albums are going off and the biz never sleeps. But he had a long career being a personality. No doubt. That's that's what we're talking about. His biggest hit was Just a Friend. That's the that's the one. That's I thought you were wanting me to say he is just a just friend. A friend? I wish he was. I know people who knew him. Uh, his, that's the pop hit even casual fans of hip-hop will recognize. He was part of the Juice Crew, which I'd never heard of because I'm not that not that knowledgeable about hip-hop and certainly the early days. But the Juice Crew included Biz Markie, Big Daddy Kane, I know him, Roxanne Shanty, I know her, and Cool G Rap, among others. So that's pretty cool. And he was an amazingly good beatboxer. He was so crazy good and out of this world, he was cast as a beatboxing alien in Men in Black 2. That's not the most important thing about him. The curious and fun thing beyond his talent and the music that he created is that he was involved in a landmark court case about sampling. This is the court case you talk about. He was sued for sampling the Gilbert O'Sullivan song Alone Again, which is the song Alone Again, naturally, you know, that song. And anyway, he used that. He sampled it back in the Wild West days of sampling, and he lost the case. Losing that case was the turning point for the industry. After that case, record labels cleared every sample they made. It kind of put a bit of a stymie on the creativity that was going on. It may not have been the best thing in the world in terms of creativity because like, you wouldn't have had the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, if they had to make it after that this court case happened. But it needed to happen, and Biz Markie was right there. So that's kind of a cool footnote to a guy who had a fun career. It's just a friend. Well, you know what? We hope you're our friends next week when we uh, have yet another episode. And you know what? If you don't want to miss that episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, the over at Google Podcasts, the Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. You know what? Some of those places allow you to rate and review the show. Please do that because it helps us out when you do that. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us or ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. 
or Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandboxes, where you can like our page. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week, he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's now let me take a trip down memory lane.com. That's a Bismarck shout out. Bismarck shout out. Right. Oh, you knew and, that. Did you know that? I'm sorry. I did know that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, those are lyrics that I can, I can never name the, 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 the song, but when you say them, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that one. But in any case, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that particular website, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his coverage of the entertainment industry can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Thank you.